Welcome to the GnomeCast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. Today you have me, Jared, the review gnome, and a very special guest. Hello, would you like to introduce yourself and tell our listeners where they might know you from in the tabletop RPG space? Sure. My name is Steve Kenson, and uh, as The Simpsons says, you may know me from such RPGs <laughs> as uh, Mutants and Masterminds, which I designed for Green Renine Publishing, Blue Rose Romantic Fantasy, and The Expanse, uh, amongst other Green Renine projects. I also did a lot of freelance work on the new edition of Aberrant for Trinity Continuum from Onyx Path. Um, and back in the day, did a lot of work for FASA Corporation. My 5e credits include uh, lead design on Out of the Abyss and Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide for Wizards of the Coast uh, on behalf of Green Running Publishing, and more recently, uh, some work on Strixhaven and Fizzband's Guide to Dragons. That is awesome, and I know my gaming shelves, I have a ton of stuff with uh, your name in them, so this is an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us what the Twilight Accord is for those of us that haven't looked into the project. So Twilight Accord is a 5e fantasy setting and adventure campaign that is put together in the in the style of a lot of the campaigns that Wizards of the Coast has done in that it, it combines setting material and uh, adventure uh, slash campaign material. The key thing with Twilight Accord is that it is a setting that is centered on the experiences of queer characters, uh, which is to say LGBTQ plus characters. So I know that for the uh, Patreon, you had basically mentioned that you really want to be able to work on this while Green Ronin is working on other projects. If you wouldn't mind, why do you feel that it is important at this time to have this project live and visible? Well, it's twofold, uh, really. One is because I really want to work on it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a project that really speaks to me. And I think that has a lot of exciting elements to it. But more importantly than just scratching my creative itch, I think that concepts like Twilight Accord are really important at this time when there are greater and greater opportunities for more diverse voices and more diverse points of view and experiences in our hobby and in tabletop role-playing in general. We make the point in the FAQ for Twilight Accord that although uh, there's been a great deal more inclusivity in a lot of tabletop RPGs for queer people. There hasn't been as much in terms of stories and settings that focus on the experiences of queer people. And that's a distinct difference. Yeah, definitely. I think that's true of a lot of different media right now, Mm -hmm. where you may see more representation, but you're not necessarily seeing those characters being centered in the narrative. It's like it's a major hurdle just to have them included in the narrative (laughs) to begin with. Right. So while the story and the framing of the Twilight Accord are very important for centering LGBTQ plus characters, you've also spent a lot of time making some engaging mechanics for 5e. Mm -hmm. I've had a chance to look at some some of the playtest material, and um, I'd just like to get your take on why you think it's important to marry a compelling narrative to compelling mechanics. Well, because we are talking about designing material for a game. Although we could certainly do a queer-focused 
campaign setting using just the core 5e material uh, as it is it adds a lot to the setting to give it some unique elements and characteristics and game mechanics of its own as far as that goes and i think that you know every gamer likes new toys <laughs> i mean we all we all do as far as that goes and so part of the expectation of an exciting new campaign and setting is going to be that it's going to come with some new toys yeah i definitely agree whenever you know something is native to a particular setting that makes it stand apart a little bit more as much as i am like a long-term fan of the forgotten realms for example because you mentioned the sword coast adventurers guide mm -hmm. because there are no special mechanics just to to represent things that only exist in the realms it does tend to feel more like a default for people sometimes as opposed to when you can show mechanics that are specifically highlighting aspects of a setting i agree um so what are some of your favorite mechanics that you have worked on so far my favorite mechanic so far has been our work on expanding the inspiration mechanic to have much more of an influence on the setting. One of the elements of, of Twilight Accord is what we call a fires of inspiration, um, which uh, is basically this mystical energy force. We ended up playing on the idea of the queer pride rainbow as an emblem and as a, a sort of element within the setting. And that led us to uh, playing around with all the rainbow colored elements in the game system of various chromatic and prismatic spells, <laughs> And saying, so what if there was some sort of force that they all came from and was related to them in some way? There was some sort of higher metaphysical thing to it. And that led us to the notion of the inspiration mechanic as being strongly tied into a character's ideals, essentially, uh, as well as their flaws. Uh, one of the elements of this setting is really about working with the higher ideals of community and liberation and the like. Maybe we can tie inspiration into that. And so uh, that led us to the material, which uh, is one of our most recent playtest releases, which is basically the expanded inspiration mechanics that uh, go a little bit more in depth into defining what inspiration is, what it means to be inspired and then talks about some level-based options the characters get in order to use their inspiration in different ways. It was funny because I was going to try and come up with like, oh, what was my favorite thing that I've seen so far? But honestly, that is actually probably my favorite thing that I've seen so far. I really like that take on uh, inspiration. I was discussing it with one of my friends, and we were even going so far as to say that's almost a better fit for the way 5e does things than even alignment. Mm -hmm. It's actually saying that because you are aligned to this thing, these are the things that are true. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily lawful good or chaotic good or anything like that, but it is still that kind of a bundle of the things that you believe in and what you are yep. that affects things. And I really, really like that. Thank you. It's interesting. I actually did a sort of informal survey on social media um, asking if people considered alignment and basically the ideals and flaws, uh, traits, core elements of 5e. And most people um, said ideals and personality traits and flaws, and uh, only maybe half to a third as many people said alignment. Since I've been running 5e, I don't even ask my players necessarily to come up with their alignments. I'm going to assume 
not evil for the most part mm-hmm. and there aren't really that many mechanics that interact with that there's yeah. a few magic items here and there but for the most part it's not something that 5e seems to worry as much about mm-hmm. which i am fine with yeah but <laughs> rather than turn this into an alignment discussion <laughs> however <Fair enough. laughs> what would a specific adventure look like in this setting basically we have a primary campaign arc sketched out for the, the the initial book the high concept of of twilight accord uh is that there is a mysterious ruin in uh, a demi plane or a you know sort of planar realm that we are calling the gloom that it may well be the mythic first city the place where the multiverse began from essentially and the first city has sat in the gloom for untold aeons and has, you know, become basically a, you know, a giant mega dungeon, a ruin inhabited by all manner of monsters. The, the one non-monstrous inhabitant of the gloom is what we call the Twilight Advocate, a spirit from the dawn of creation that has awakened to the presence of other souls in the gloom who they feel a kinship to. And that's queer people who have been marginalized and found their way literally into the sort of shadows on the edges of society. And through those shadows have found their way into this demiplane. And the Twilight Advocate has basically taken the sort of, you know, old wizard in the inn role writ large and has sent a vision to these people and said, there is this ruin that once was my domain. If you want to come and reclaim it, it's yours and you can make a home for your people from it. And people have from across the plains have responded to this vision and this message and they have gone out into the gloom and they have found the city. And now they are trying to figure out, honestly, at this stage of things, how to get in. Because the the city has vast walls and giant gates and it's sealed. And uh, they've been working on the process of following the visions that they've been given to gather all of the elements of the fires of inspiration that will unlock the gates. But basically, the initial Twilight Accord campaign is a classic dungeon crawl with the, the key difference being that the nice little town uh, that the adventurers retreat to after they've had you know, some adventures in the dungeon, is a settlement of queer people camped outside the walls who are waiting to get in uh, in order to start fixing the place up and turning it into home sooner or later. So it, it's also the answer to, well, what happens once the adventurers have cleared out all of the monsters in this part of the dungeon, or for that matter, in the entire dungeon? Well, that's when the next stage happens. How many uh, amenities are there basically in this camp? Like, for example, if you wanted to go out and buy your plate armor, would you be able to find somebody that could provide that there? Or is that something where people are going to be crossing back and forth back to like planes that they might have come from rather than staying in that settlement? There's a little both. Um, and our vision of Gloman Gate, which is the, the settlement outside uh, of the city, is that elements of it are still a bit makeshift. The people in Gloman Gate who have been there the longest have still been there for years. They have definitely settled in. It's not a temporary arrangement, uh, you know, as far as that goes. 
and they have found ways to make do uh, with the environment they're dealing with. We're fortunate that we can play around with some of the magical elements of the setting so far as that goes. Um, and we pitch some of our inspiration mechanics along those lines as well. So you will be able to find a lot of things uh, in Gloman Gate. It is primarily a place of rest and shelter and uh, recovery, as well as the character's community. It's, it's you know, where the, the, the people they care about are. But there are definitely potential for adventures where characters are going to need to go uh, and leave the gloom and go out into one of the planes in order to find supplies or to get things that the community needs or, for that matter, to help other people find their way to Gloman Gate uh, because it's not an easy journey. And the people who have made it there so far are pretty hardy, but now they're going to be looking out for people who might have a harder time making the journey on their own, but can still do it with help. One of the things that I really noticed with the setting that I think is really interesting is that in previous editions of D&D, especially when novels got to be really big, a lot of your image of who someone from a setting was would come from whoever was featured in novels or things like that. Mm -hmm. And it seems like 5e has really transitioned more towards your experience with this setting is what your characters are. Mm -hmm. Your characters are the ones that are going to be doing these things and doing the heroic things and resolving the situations. And we're not going to have a lot of outside narrative bringing in heroes that actually save the place where you live. And that has always made me kind of wonder, how do you frame that as more inclusive other than just having some NPCs once in a while that show more inclusivity? And what I like about how the setting does this is this is showing that inclusivity from the ground up. This is the core tenet of the people that get called here. Yeah. And that's what's centering it in the narrative. And I really like how that works as part of the story. Thank you. We basically approached it for that exact reason uh, was the notion that because of the nature of the setting, most of the heroes are going to be some shade of queer as far as that goes, just because that's what the community looks like. There was also something in some of the materials that I liked, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that, where you were talking about how and I don't remember if it was you or Joe that wrote this particular piece, but it mm-hmm. had to do with how a lot of the monsters that haunt the ruins aren't necessarily literal sapient things, but they might be more representational of negative aspects of the universe in general kind of being distilled into this area. One of the elements we wanted to include in the setting was dealing with the issue of displacement. And there's a strong sort of colonizer undercurrent in d d when it comes to the notion of breaking into people's homes and killing them and stealing their stuff. Mm -hmm. And even when it came to the evil humanoid races and, you know, the, the ongoing discussion about the problematic notion of a race being evil, we wanted to work our way around that by making it very clear that the inhabitants of the city aren't people. Even some of them are somewhat, some of them may be humanoid looking, but even still, they're not people. They're not uh, a species that lives and dies and breeds and has an existence like us. They are literal monsters. And it's important for most of them to make it clear that 
it's not a matter of making friends with them. Uh, there may be ways to defeat them other than simply combat, but it's it's not a case of the characters being invaders. That's sort of a theme we wanted to avoid. It's interesting seeing in general how D&D has been kind of dealing with that and moving the narrative away from that sort of thing. Even as early as like second edition, things were kind of shifting more towards you're saving the kingdom. You're not necessarily clearing out this forest and starting your castle there. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of that baggage that, (laughs) that comes in there. Yeah. And I think it's not enough to just ignore the baggage and try and do better. You kind of have to address the baggage, too, and say, we specifically do not want to do these things. Yeah, exactly. So I really I really enjoyed that aspect the setting material has been really interesting to go through for anyone that has not seen the Patreon, and you should there's actually been a really good mix of different setting element things that have been released that explain different aspects you know like you mentioned the settlement is that's outside the walls and different aspects like that and then also more mechanical playtest material so far it's just been great getting these things on a regular basis because they're very exciting they're fun to read they get me thinking about a lot of things so i i've really enjoyed all of this so far oh, i'm very glad to hear that that's that was the desired effect one of the things that i also caught it is something that has existed in DD before but it seems to be something they're really hitting on with some recent 5e lore is the idea of a first world and all the planes kind of mm-hmm. moving off of there. That was really hit hard, like in uh, Fizzbands, which, you know, you mentioned earlier. And I like that this dovetails on that situation there. Well, one of the, the ideas behind the cosmology of Twilight Accord, and we don't play it up too much, but it's still something we gave a lot of thought to, is the fact that because it's a planar setting and is sort of a crossroads in many ways, it nicely fits into the D&D multiverse in such a way that you know your characters can be from anywhere. And while we can't outright mention anybody's copyrighted settings, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of D&D settings, including everybody's own personal campaigns and you know whatnot. And so uh, we had initially thought about the notion of Twilight Accord taking place in the context of a, an, an earthly setting, like a lot of D&D campaign settings. Mm. But then we were faced with the problem of both creating the context of the entire world that existed around the city and the campaign, Uh and also being essentially limited to that world. And so the gloom nicely sets us up with uh, a space that exists in between all the worlds. So uh, if you want character, you want to even mix and match characters and backgrounds from all of your favorite D&D worlds, you can. Yeah, and that's uh, that's always something whenever I see like a setting that is cross planar for, you know, Ravenloft or anything, I immediately start thinking like, wow, I could have a campaign where this person can make the person from like Cobalt Press's Midgard and this person can make somebody from, you know, Greyhawk mm-hmm. and they can all come to this place because they're all stuck together and they have to work together anyway. Right. One of the other things that, you know, I do a lot of reviews and I look over a lot of different third party D&D material and everything. And one of the things that I like that I've seen in this is all of the playtest material has been very up on some of the kind of design shifts that 5e has gone through 
for example, shifting from per ability score bonus for an ability to per proficiency bonus and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any of those changes that you noticed that you were especially interested to get integrated into some of these things? It was mainly the idea of trying to stay current. Uh, as far as that goes, uh, we definitely took the notion of how we did ancestries into account uh, as far as that went. We addressed, started addressing that in the Blue Rose Adventurer's Guide yeah. uh, for 5e and wanted to extend that same concept to Twilight Accord to make sure that we're in step with the way 5e is, is continuing to evolve. This is me being a Dragon Age player and liking Shale, but I really like that there's a construct race that is more of a stone construct instead of like the more mechanical, you know, like the Warforged or things like that. Yeah, no, I get that. I like Shale. I, that's basically all I can say about it. I, I like the Automa <laughs> a lot, too. I was I was a big fan of the uh, Obsidian from uh, Earth Dawn back in the day mm-hmm. uh, for, for stone <laughs> fantasy races. So there's a little a touch of them uh, in, in the Automa's inspiration. Can you give us any hints as to what the overall campaign arc might be other than just restoring the city without being too spoilery? The key things are that the different areas of the city present different themes or challenges for folks who are watching as as things in Twilight Accord develop. You will not be at all surprised to discover that there are seven of them and uh, that uh, (laughs) they, they run in a very similar set of themes to some other things that we have been doing. By design, there is a lot of dungeon crawling and there is a lot of monster slaying so far as that goes. But there are a number of other elements to the overall campaign. One of them is dealing with the sort of developing politics of Blomengate and the Accord, especially as the characters become more and more prominent within it and more and more people begin to look to them for guidance and leadership, that becomes something that the characters basically have to decide whether or not they're taking on. Do they want to be in charge? And if so, to what degree? And of course, keeping in mind that you know one of the challenges of saying you don't want to be in charge is there are always people waiting in the wings who will be happy to <laughs> take the reins if you don't. There's just the larger question of eventually freeing the the Twilight Advocate and restoring the the city. That's pretty much the the culmination of the of the initial campaign arc. And along the way, there is the wagon train of people that are following the adventurers, the champions of the Accord, deeper into the city as they go. And as areas are clear, the community expands and grows and changes, and the whole character of the city changes as well. It becomes a very different story when the characters are outside the gates and are comparative nobodies and need to find the key thing that's going to get them inside because they have a very specific motivation for it in the early adventures versus when the city is more divided between the Accord having control of several districts of it and the forces of the gloom still having control of parts of it. And now you're fighting, you know, sort of an intercity conflict uh, where the city is divided. Things sort of evolve as the campaign progresses. Whenever someone talks about, you know, people reluctantly taking control, you know, and stepping into a leadership role, it always reminds me of I read, I think it was Songs of Distant Earth by uh, Arthur C. Clarke. There is a part in there where they decided that anyone that actually wanted to run for office was immediately disqualified. (laughs) 
And then the other people that were not willing to run for office were immediately put in as potential people to run. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I won't make any further comments other than that that doesn't sound that terrible right now. Right. (laughs) So far, we've seen some of the subclasses that have come out. Mm -hmm. I like the Bard. The Bard is focused around dancing and Mm -hmm. movement. That's a very interesting uh, thing. I love I love the cleric. Oh, the liberation domain. Yeah. Yeah, I love the liberation domain. And I like the wizard. Oh, and the rogue. Mm-hmm, the scoundrel. Honestly, I, the scoundrel might be kind of my favorite version of a swashbuckler type scoundrel oh, that I've you. seen. And there's been a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed very appropriate for the uh, the style of the setting. So is there... Anything that's going to be coming up for playtest soon that you wanted to preview for people or to entice people to jump on and so they can see? Well, we are going to keep rolling out the subclasses and some of the other mechanical elements. But the next big playtest piece is going to be a draft of the first adventure called On the Night Road. Oh, nice. That is basically a setup adventure uh, wherein the characters are literally following the night road in the company of some other people heading to Blomengate um, and encounter some trouble along the way and sets up uh, some of the elements of the campaign, both introducing the characters to elements of the setting and also dropping some of the initial hints that our player characters are, are destined for greatness in certain ways. Just out of curiosity, when it comes to like being aligned to the different colors for the uh, inspiration mechanic. Mm -hmm. Is that something that people would start out with even before they interact with the actual city and going through the gloom to reach it? Yes. Although the way we have set it up right now, and folks who check out the playtest document will see that the color aligned inspiration mechanics start around third level which is deliberate, much like subclass choices usually hit around that time to give players a little chance to feel out their character style, that sort of thing. But the basic notion is that the fires of inspiration are awakened in people who have the the potential for them by hearing the advocate's call. So once the characters are embarked on that journey into the gloom and seeking the city, They've already started to touch on that potential. And the first adventure gets into a little of that, in fact, where the characters have another vision and get a little bit of a hint at some of the uh, what they're potentially capable of. Do you think that you would be doing any more ancestries beyond the ones that already hit playtesting? It's possible. We didn't want to overcomplicate things uh, so far as that went because our default assumption is that obviously all the available ancestries that already exist, you know, are available, along with whatever there is out there in the plains that, you know, uh, a DM wants to include in their campaign. You know, I mean, there could be, you know, as long as it's ancestry that's been published somewhere, it could show up in the gloom. There is quite a few available after uh, Monsters of the Multiverse. (laughs) Yeah. So we we didn't want to overdo it. And we wanted to do ancestries that were fairly well connected to the the setting in various ways. But one of the important things to note about Twilight Accord and the Patreon is that this is all under development. And everything people are seeing right now are still first drafts and playtest material 
Mm -hmm. So nothing is written in stone at this point. You know, we have an outline and we have plans to be sure, but those plans can change. Things can develop. New ideas may present themselves. We already, Joe and I have already been knocking around an additional idea to expand the inspiration mechanics uh, in a particular way where we were talking about the notion of how does you know the inspiration mechanic work when you're using your inspiration on someone who's already inspired, that sort of a thing. And we have to think about that. Everything is under development. Everything is up for grabs as far as that goes. So I won't rule out that we might do more ancestries. We don't need plans for them right at the moment. But if the perfect concept were to present itself, obviously, we'd take a look at it. That's one of the things that's very exciting to me is that it is a great concept. It is a great core for a setting. It's a really important setting, but it's also really exciting to get in on the ground floor of seeing all of these mechanics, you know, as they are developing. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I love seeing. Yeah, especially even, you know, as they develop, like when you see things change and you can start thinking, well, this probably changed because this would interact with this. And it's just... Mm -hmm. I love putting those blocks together, which is part of why I jumped on supporting this as fast as I could, because I really, I, I really like that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I hugely enjoyed the, the 5e playtest process when it was happening. So I think of this as, uh, you know, sort of a miniature, you know, version of that concept. Is there any class that you think is going to be tricky to come up with a good subclass for? Well, I will say that there are a couple of the subclasses that aren't written yet, but we do have concepts for all of them. We wanted to make sure that that was was pretty clearly done before we we launched uh, as far as that goes. Rangers were pretty challenging when it came to a subclass, and I'll be curious to see uh, what people think of what we came up with. I think it has some interesting elements to it. But we definitely needed to focus on the fact that there isn't, while there are certainly wild areas of the city, there are big, you know, sort of overgrown parklands and things like that. There isn't exactly a lot of wilderness per se. And so a lot of the traditional uh, ranger roles don't fall into the setting quite so neatly. That definitely took a fair amount of work as far as that went. I am still developing the sorcerer subclass so i am hoping that it proves to be easy but we'll see <laughs> i am a big fan of rangers so i'll mm. be interested to see how that turns out i have loved rangers ever since i read lord of the rings yeah yeah i'm a fan myself so huge aragorn fan so <laughs> i mean and that's also part of this playtest process to see how some of our ideas land with people, mm -hmm. you know, not just to work out the, you know, like nitty gritty mechanical details, but sometimes we might put out a, uh, an ancestry or a subclass or something like that, and it could fall totally flat. And people will be like, yeah, that's just not interesting. I'm still mourning the loss of the, uh, the true naming subclass that Watsi put out in, uh, on Arcana that apparently me and like five other people that I know <laughs> really liked and nobody else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, the development process being what it is, things like that go into, you know, a file somewhere. And years later, you know, somebody finds the perfect place to put them. Do you have anything else maybe related, maybe not related to Highlight Citadel wise that you have coming up that you want to share with anybody? Well, I will mention for folks whose curiosity is piqued that they can visit patreon.com slash Twilight Accord to check out the Patreon. 
and uh, see what we've got. There is some there are some public posts to get a taste of what we're getting started with, and the tiers outline what you get access to by way of the materials. So far as that goes, the Patreon is an evolving thing as well, and we may be adjusting our release schedule and you know how people get access to things uh, as far as that goes as things progress. Eventually, uh, we can do uh, a bit more press, maybe even you know uh, an actual play or something of that sort when we you know have a bit more material in place. Mm-hmm. So far as that goes, for some of the what's coming up for the setting, we've only been at this for a couple of months, so there's still a pretty hefty amount of material because we're releasing stuff weekly, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's still got uh, quite a bit to go. It's interesting because I know there's so much more that you have to do yet, but I've just been amazed at the amount of stuff that has come out so far and what it's looked like and everything. It's just, it's, it's kind of blown me away. So I really think the setting really should resonate with a lot of people. I I really like it. I hope so. I, I really hope so. You know, in addition to writing the stuff that I like, which I think is a good place to start. <laughs> I often, you know, try to approach design from the perspective of writing the products and the books and the games that I wish I'd had. Uh-huh. And Twilight Accord is very much a kind of setting that I wish that I had had when I was younger and first playing d and I don't know that I would have even been able to fit my head around the notion <laughs> of a queer-focused fantasy RPG campaign at that time. Mm-hmm. The notion of inclusion at that time was tremendous and, and almost unheard of. So I hope that a lot of our community will find something of value in it. Part of why I, I love this concept is because, again, without going too deep into things, I want to keep seeing the world moving forward and getting to be a better place and being a brighter place. And I want to see things like this in that world getting firmly entrenched to where we can't go backwards again, where it's just Mm -hmm. too much a part of society for it not to be part of society anymore. Yeah. And that's why I really, really want to make sure that people know that this exists and so that people can jump on board and see what kind of work you're doing with it. I'll really appreciate it. So where can people find you beyond uh, the Patreon if they want to keep track of what you're up to? Well, folks can check out greenronin.com for all of Green Ronin Publishing's various projects, including Twilight Accord. People can find me at stevekenson.com, which is my website and sorely neglected blog, (laughs) which doesn't get updated all that often. And folks can find me primarily on Twitter for social media. I'm at at S. Kenson. And people can hear me both shill for my various <laughs> RPG products and just sort of rage into the void at the state of the world <laughs> all at the same time. Thank you so much for being on here. This is this means a lot to me that you would come on here. And I really appreciate it. I hope, hope we can talk again as this uh, project develops a little bit more. I would love that. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me.